Awesome. Well, good morning. Good to see you again. Uh, again, just want to thank these brothers and sisters for leading us in worship. It's so awesome to see just the body of Christ come together. Although they're not members here, they can still use their gifts to just glorify Christ and lead us in worship. So we thank you for that. And so as we've just praised the name of Jesus, we shouldn't let the worship stop, right? We can still worship God as we read his word and as we work. So let's not let the worship stop. Let's continue to respond in worship to his word. And so with that, I have a question to, uh, to pull your attention in. By show of hands, how many of you would say, I enjoy a good movie? I like sitting down, going to the movie theater and watching a good movie. How many? So we've got some movie watchers. I personally like action movies, something that takes my attention, right? Gunshots, uh, car chases, explosions, superheroes. I love all of that stuff. That's, that's my go-to kind of movie. If it has Navy SEALs or something like that or Superman, I'm all about it. So I was talking with our students this Wednesday and I said, I need your help. I need you to tell me what the best uh, bad guy versus good guy kind of cinema movies that we've seen, right? The, the best in history. And so they, they listed a few for me. They said uh, Avengers versus Thanos, if any of you are familiar with that. One of the best, right? They said uh, Batman versus Joker. I know we've got to be familiar with that. Uh, they said Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader, my personal favorite. I actually have Star Wars socks on uh, right now. And for you more romantic people, they mentioned uh, the Titanic versus the iceberg. I don't know uh, if you agree with that or not, right? But we love these movies that have these good guys battling the bad guys, and we get to watch them duel it out, and ultimately, typically, we see the good guys win. And so I bring all that up to say that since the beginning of Mark chapter 2, we have seen Jesus going head-to-head with the Pharisees. There have been conflict after conflict, situation after situation where Jesus and the Pharisees don't see eye to eye, right? Jesus does something miraculous or teaches something new and the Pharisees get upset, right? They get angry at Jesus. So we're going to continue to see that today. At the start of Mark 2, we saw that Jesus heals the paralytic man. And then what does he do? He forgives him of their sins. And the Pharisees are like, who are you to do this? And then he eats with the tax collectors and sinners and calls Levi in to be a disciple. And over and over and over again, Jesus is uh, upsetting the religious leaders. And we're going to continue to see that today. And our situations will be revolving around the Sabbath, right? Jesus' teachings and actions on the Sabbath are going to upset the Pharisees. It's going to be beautiful what we see. Danny Aiken summarizes what happens. He says, the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, are certainly getting tired of Jesus humiliating them and asserting his own authority. The worst part is he continually backs up his claims with acts of undeniable power and teaching with an inherent authority. And right, we're going to see this all play out this morning. And what's beautiful at the very end, we will see that the path to the cross will become clear because the Pharisees will begin to plot the death of Jesus. And so from here on out in Mark, we will see that ultimately everything is leading up to the cross and to our salvation. So let's read this morning. And the main idea that I want you to gather from this is that Jesus frees us from legalism so that we can find rest in him. I think this is going to be a beautiful morning. Uh, let's read in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. 
And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's holy word. Let's pray and then dive in. This is going to be fun. Dear God, we come to you right now so thankful, so thankful for who you are, that we get to sing praises to your name. We ask that your spirit would illuminate the text for us this morning, right? Let it not be my words. Let it be yours, God. Let it not be uh, my name, my glory, anyone else's glory in this room but yours. And would your spirit speak to our hearts in a special way? Every single person in here needs to hear from you, and I pray that you would do that in mighty and special ways. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. So the first thing that we'll see, we pull it right from the text, is that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And so our passage begins with the disciples and Jesus walking through a grain field. And they begin to get hungry, right? They need a, they need a little snack. They've been walking a lot. So they grab some grain uh, from a field, right? And the Pharisees think this is a huge deal. They're, they're freaking out. And for us as 21st century American readers, we're like, what's the big deal? They were hungry. They, they got a snack. Like, why is this such a problem? The problem with this action was that it occurred on the Sabbath. The Sabbath for the Israelites was a holy day. It was a day of rest, a day of worshiping God, right? It was the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. They were to set aside the Sabbath day to worship God, to rest. And so for Jews and for the Pharisees, work was prohibited, right? They were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They were to keep it holy and rest. But the details of the Sabbath were not so clear, right? There were commands to not work, but there was not fine details of what was work and what was not work. So what the Pharisees did, they created this long list of do's and don'ts, things you can do and things you can't do. They actually had 39 categories of actions that you could not complete on the Sabbath, right? So they were, they were trying to make it clear. They were trying to honor God, but what they ended up doing was adding to God's word. And that's what legalism always does. It adds something to God's law, God's word. It says, hey, this is God's word. This is my thoughts, but it's on the same level, the same authority as God's word. So they look at the disciples and they say, you are guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Well, what did they break? They would have said that they were breaking the law of not reaping. They were harvesting food, right? You see, they, they apply it a little shaky, right? They were just grabbing a snack. They didn't have their sickles out. They weren't harvesting anything. But It's what the the Pharisees are accusing them of. They say, you are working. This is not right. So they go to Jesus and they say, hey, your disciples, they are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They hold Jesus accountable for the actions of his disciples, right? And notice what Jesus says. He has, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God? They, They entered the tabernacle and ate the bread of the presence that was meant for only the priests. And Jesus points to David, who's a uh, former king of Israel. He was a huge, heroic figure for the Jewish faith. These Pharisees would have looked up to him, and he says, remember what David was doing when he was on the run from Saul in 1 Samuel 21? Right? They're hungry, and they're, they're running. They're doing the Lord's work, so they come across this bread that only the priest was supposed to eat, but they do what is not lawful because they're in need. Right? God provides for them. And the point that Jesus is making, he's saying, my disciples are doing the Lord's work. They are in need, so they are finding provision. What Jesus is doing, he's saying that human need is greater, greater than ceremonial laws. What the Pharisees were doing was placing their tradition, their ideas over the needs of their neighbor. And Jesus is saying, that is not right. Protecting human life is more important than protect, protecting tradition. And right, for the legalist, your self-righteousness comes from what you do, right? 
from, from how you live, from your self-perceived holiness. So they were saying, no, 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 no. Although you may be hungry, you have to follow the law. And they thought that enforcing it and, and living it out would make them more holy, more righteous. But Jesus clarifies something, and this is a beautiful truth that I think we all need. He clarifies the true purpose of the Sabbath, and he rescues it from the legalism of the Pharisees. He says this in verse 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was given to God or given to man by God as a blessing. But what the Pharisees had done, they had turned it into a a burden, something that was a, a load to carry. Some good gift given by God is ruined by man. That happens all the time, especially with Pharisees, especially with legalism, right? They add on to Scripture, and what was once a blessing is now a burden. When do we first see the Sabbath mentioned in the Bible? When do we first see the idea the Sabbath? Is it in Exodus or is it in the creation narrative? I think you find it in Genesis 1 and 2 where you see God creates the world, right? In six days, he creates the heavens, the stars, the moon, the sun. He fills the earth with every living creature. He creates man and woman. And then what does he do on the seventh day? He takes a rest. He doesn't work. His work is completed. And did God rest because he was tired, in need of a nap, right? Was, was God sweating a little bit and saying, oh, I got to sit down? No. We know that Isaiah in, in Isaiah 40 tells us that God doesn't sleep. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't need to take a break, but God rested for you. And he rested for me, right? Because he knew that you and I would get tired and that you and I would need to rest. He did it as an example for us. And he also rested because his creation was complete. It was perfect, right? The world didn't need anything at that point. So he rested and get this, you and I were created to exist in this state of completeness that God had created in Genesis 1 and 2. You and I were created to exist in the state of perfection in the garden, but we know that sin entered into the world, right? Man rebelled, and we went our own way, so the chaos entered into the world, right? Perfection was disrupted, and our rest was lost, right? The Sabbath was meant to be a good thing to remind the Israelites of the future rest that they had coming in. For you and I as Christians... The Sabbath points us to our ultimate rest in heaven, right? Because through the gospel, Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has provided us for salvation. And one day, we will be in heaven forever and ever and ever in a state of perfection, right? It'll all be perfect. We won't be tired. We won't be crying. We won't be in pain. We won't be sick. It'll be perfection. The completeness that we lost in Genesis 1 and 2 will be returned to us. And we look forward to that with joy and excitement And now, in this present time, we look to Jesus for our rest. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 11, 28. This is is beautiful, and I know there's someone who needs to hear these words. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and find rest. All who are tired, all who are stressed out, worn out, running on empty. He says, all of you, come to me and find rest. Rest Through a relationship with Jesus, we can find true rest. When we get tired, when life is hard, we can run to the arms of our Savior and find rest, knowing that ultimately one day we will be in heaven and we will rest forever and we will worship God forever and ever and ever. You see, the Sabbath was a beautiful thing, but the Pharisees had turned it into a burden. It was a chore. They had taken something that was glorious and turned it into something that was just chaotic and a a load to bury. 
And I want this idea of the Sabbath to, to, to bless us just for a moment, because there's many different Christian views on the Sabbath, right? Like, should Christians uphold the Sabbath? And if you don't Sabbath a week, are you sinning? I, I don't think, and this is my personal opinion, that we are mandated to Sabbath anymore as Christians. I don't think that's a sin if you don't do it, but I think the principle of the Sabbath still remains. Right? I think you and I should still learn from the Sabbath, learn from God and how he rested. I think life gets too busy. Our schedules get too hectic. And we get too tired to not find weekly time to rest in Jesus. I believe that we should all take a day once a week to rest, reflect, and reconnect with Jesus. We need that. God knew what he was doing when he established the principle of rest when he created. He knew you would get tired he knew I would get tired. And so the Sabbath is for our good. I would imagine many of us in here are living from vacation to vacation, right? We're just waiting for the next time that we can get out to the beach or up to the mountains. How many times do you hear someone at work say, oh, I just need a vacation. I can't wait till next month when I'm on the beach. I just, I just need to get away and relax and rest. And vacations are good, but maybe Maybe we are living this vacation-to-vacation lifestyle because we are neglecting to rest in Christ weekly. Maybe we are neglecting to rest in the hands of our Savior so we are getting worn out. We are not created to work 24-7, seven days a week. We're not meant to do it. We cannot sustain that. And you might say, man, I'm too busy. I work too hard. My kids have too many games, too many events, right? I have too much homework. I can't rest And I get it. Life is overwhelming. Life gets busy. But I think we need to find time to rest. The reality is every single one of us sets our own schedule, right? If you're super, super busy, more than likely you had a choice in that, right? You had a choice to be at the football field on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and at practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right? We have control over our week. And I think we need to make a priority to find rest in Jesus. What would change if we began to live this out? What would look different in your life if you began to find one day in the week to find rest in Jesus? Listen to this quote from Justin Huffman. He says this, the principle of weaving regular Christ-centered rest into our schedule is a piece of particularly divine brilliance, a revelation that while clearly counterintuitive to many of us is for our flourishing and God's glory. I think that's a, a beautiful comment on this. We have to rest. How many of you have a cell phone? If you have a cell phone, put it in the air, right? I, I, I want to see, if you have an iPhone, you can, you can put that up loud and proud. Samsung or something like that, uh, you might want to go ahead and put that back in your pocket pretty quickly, right? But this iPhone is beautiful. Do you realize that this is an amazing piece of technology? The computing power in an iPhone is astounding. The Apollo 11, which was the first space shuttle to put people on the moon, did you know that this iPhone has more computing power than that space shuttle? And the technology that it had, it's incredible. I can FaceTime people around the world. I can be in group text messages with students and church members and family members. I can work out details and plans. I can go on Instagram and surf the web. I can watch the latest sports game or stream an action movie, right? I can check my bank account, pay bills. I can send people money, fantasy sports, all that, right? Buy crypto, whatever you're into, right? You can do so much with this phone. It's changed our society. It's changed our youth. It's incredible. But every day, I have to take my phone, and I have to plug it in, and I have to give it a moment 
to recharge. I have to set it aside and charge it because if my phone dies, if that battery goes to zero, my phone is absolutely useless to me. I can't FaceTime, can't make calls, can't pay my bills, right? I have to set it aside for it to recharge. Let it rest. And I would say the same thing for us is true. If you're to be the father that God has called you to be, the mother, the spouse, the the child, the boss, the student, whatever, fill in the blank. If you're to be the disciple of Jesus that God wants you to be, you have to find time to rest. I would imagine that many of us are running on empty, just needing rest, and we're looking to all the wrong places. We ultimately need to not look to a vacation, not to a Netflix show, but to our Lord and Savior who says, come to me when you are weary and find rest. We must not ignore this. And as the holiday season approaches, this is like the most stressful time of the year, right? Thanksgiving, then Christmas. And what do we do? We set our schedules. We're going this. We're going to this house. We're making this meal. We're buying these presents. We're doing this, 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 and this. And we forget to find time to rest in Jesus. I would encourage you as the holiday season approaches to set aside time to rest in your Savior. You must. Every single day you say, I'm too busy. I promise you, you can find time. If God, after creating the world, upholding the universe in his hands, can find time to rest, I think you and I can as well. It's all about how important you think it is, making it a priority to rest in Jesus, how that might benefit your families, how that might benefit your own walk with Jesus. That truth is beautiful. The Sabbath was made for man, to bless us, to benefit us, for our flourishing. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to say this, to make this comment about the Sabbath? The Pharisees likely would have been thinking this. Who are you to come in and say we're wrong and, and, and this is what the Sabbath is for? And Jesus clarifies who he is. He says, I am the Son of Man, right? He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And we see the divinity of Jesus on full display here. Jesus was no mere man, no mere religious teacher. He was God. He was God in human flesh, a part of the, the Godhead, the Trinity. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, fully God, fully man. He had the right to say whatever he wanted about the Sabbath because he's God. He created the Sabbath. Who are these Pharisees to tell Jesus what to do? If he is Lord, he ultimately rested on the seventh day, right? Co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. The Son rested. Jesus saying, I am the Lord. This is a beautiful thing to remind us. Jesus is the God-man. But it's also something that makes the Pharisees mad. Imagine this statement as they hear it. The, the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is raising up a level, raising up a notch. And we'll see that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And what we'll see next is the heart of the Sabbath. We'll see Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, showing that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Listen to this. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and began to plot his death. We see in this next section, there's this man with this withered hand. And this man 
would have been viewed as being cursed by God. People in that time would have thought, man, he surely did something to deserve this, right? Either he sinned or his parents sinned or his grandparents. He deserved this withered hand, right? That's how they would have viewed it. And so as he enters in the synagogue, the Pharisees are watching. They're saying, is Jesus going to heal him? Is, is, is Jesus going to heal this man on the Sabbath? And this is what dead religion and legalism and being a Pharisee does. Instead of resting on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are out policing on the Sabbath, making sure everybody is following. Instead of being in the synagogue and worshiping God, what are they doing? They're watching Jesus to see if he stumbles. Right? They completely misunderstood the Sabbath and misunderstood what they were supposed to do. They wanted to kill Jesus, to catch him breaking the Sabbath so they could get him. And so while they're trying to kill Jesus, notice the beauty of Jesus. He sees the man, the man that many would have overlooked. Many would have said he's cursed by God. Bring him back another day, not on the Sabbath. Jesus sees him. And that's the beauty of our Savior. He's full of compassion and mercy. His heart is kind. So when he sees this man, he doesn't overlook him, but he says, no, 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 come here. Jesus notices the man, and we see that he ultimately heals him. But before healing him, he asks the question, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? There were some rules from the Pharisees that would say, maybe you could heal somebody, but it has to be through our interpretation of the law and through our interpretation of what we've added to the law. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Am I okay to do good on the Sabbath and heal this man, or should I let him go? And the mindset of Jesus is this, that it is always the right time to do the right thing. You could say it another way. It is always a good thing to do what is right. That's Jesus' mindset here. He said, I'm not going to let this man go. It is the right thing to do the right thing. And in fact, Jesus was living out the heart of the Old Testament law, of the Mosaic law. Listen to Matthew 22. Someone comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord God with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love the Lord as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. By healing this man, by reaching out and touching him and healing him, Jesus was living out the whole law, loving God and loving man, right? If you want to live out the Christian walk, must include these two things, loving God and loving people. Because when we love God, we will love other people. And when we love people truly, we are loving God. And in fact, he was living out the heart of the Sabbath. Because remember, the Sabbath was for our good and for God's glory. And what is Jesus doing here? Helping somebody for his good and bringing glory to God. You see, the Pharisees completely misunderstood the Sabbath. The same grace that they were given through the Sabbath... They would not extend to this man. Often legalism and tradition keeps us from truly loving other people. We say, man, I I, I can't love you because you've got tattoos, right? I I don't do tattoos. Or I I can't love you because you don't dress the way that I think is the right way to dress. Or or, you wore a hat into church. I I, I can't do that. Or you don't preach the, the right translation or believe the right things. You don't think the exact same thing as this political issue or this theological topic. So I, I, I can't do you, man. You've got to go away. Legalism uplifts something that is not a first-tier issue, right? Like we should be all about the gospel, all about praising God. But legalism would say, but you've got to dress like me. But you've got to think like me. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. And let me just say this. 
If your views, traditions, or ideas stop you from loving other people, your views, traditions, and ideas are sinful. They're not of God. This is what the Pharisees were good at. Not loving people in order to keep the tradition. In order to keep what they believed was right. We see that Jesus heals the man. But the Pharisees' hearts are still hardened to the truth of who Jesus is. And it angers him. It says their spiritual blindness grieved his heart. And notice what we have here. It's kind of this exchange. Those who, the Pharisees would say, I, I'm, I'm close to God. I'm a, I'm a godly man. I'm righteous. Are proven to be far from God. Their hearts are hardened. But the man, cursed by God, thought to be far from God, is brought near to Jesus. So the Pharisees are pushed away. And the man with the withered hand, cursed by God, right, is brought near to Jesus. And we see this great exchange. The self-righteous are pushed away. And he who is cursed is brought near. It's a beautiful picture. Beautiful picture of the gospel. And I have a question. And just a little thought experiment. So, so think for a second. We're going to give you a second to think. If... Downtown Raleigh, just a, just a few minutes away, if downtown Raleigh was fully given over to Satan, right? And, and track with me for a second. If Satan had full control over Raleigh, what do you think he would do to it, downtown Raleigh? What do you think the city would look like? Think for a second. Think. What, what would he do to make that Satan city, right? Think for just a second. Many of us would probably think, right, there'd be bars on every corner. It'd be full of strip clubs and parades celebrating sin, and there'd be uh, drugs handed out in little goodie bags and pornography everywhere, and it would just be immorality, immorality, immorality. What we would think, right? Satan City, he's going to do that. But Paul David Tripp says this. He says, no, 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 no. Satan City would be clean. The streets would sparkle almost, and it'd be full of clean-cut people who smile and wave and, and open the door. The, the teenagers and children would say, yes, ma'am, no, sir. They would be respectful. Everybody would work hard. Nobody would cuss. Nobody would drink. We would all look nice. We would fill in the churches. Everybody would raise their hands in worship, but there would be no mention of Jesus. He says that, you see, the greatest threat to the gospel is not atheism, is not wild immorality, but it's a counterfeit gospel. A gospel that looks so close to the real thing, but is yet still so far away, just like the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees would have said that I, I, I'm right with God because I act like this. I, I go to the church. I don't cuss. I don't drink. I don't do this. That is the greatest threat to the gospel. And that's what Satan would love us to be in. I, I'm religious. I'm good. And that's one of our greatest temptations is to be like the Pharisees, to look to ourselves for our right standing with God and not Jesus. If you would have said, hey, Mr. Pharisee, are you a godly person? He would have said, yes. Hey, Mr. Pharisee, do you love God, love people? He would have said, of course I do. But they were actually far from God. Their hearts were hardened. They plot to kill Jesus. It's scary to think that we could have religion but not have Jesus. That we could do good things but not be saved. That we could be in church worshiping our brains out and Jesus not be the Lord of our heart. That's the danger of a Pharisee. We must remember that salvation comes only through the work of Jesus on the cross. You and I do nothing to earn salvation nothing to earn it. Jonathan Edwards would say, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We must not be like the Pharisee who says, man, I go to heaven 
because I do this. I, I get sad sometimes when I hear people's testimony or, or I read it and they're like, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they say, oh, well, I, I'm a Christian because I, I go to church and I got baptized when I was little and that breaks my heart because that's not salvation. Salvation is only through what Jesus did on the cross and your response to it. It's only through the finished work on the cross that we are saved. Satan would love for you to say, I'm a Christian because I did this, because I do this, because I'm better than the people outside of the church. That's not where our salvation lies. It's only in the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus, what we were just singing about. And we see that the Pharisees begin to plot how they're going to kill Jesus. So they don't like him. <laughs> they don't like him at all. So they begin to plot his death. It's beautiful to think what the Pharisees were going to use for evil, God was already using for good. Because we know that they're successful. They killed Jesus. But yet it's something glorious for us because our salvation is found through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And again, look at Jesus' heart here. He knows that he's going to do the right thing, be hated for it, and ultimately killed, and yet he still does the right thing. Why? To purchase salvation for you and for me. Christ was crucified on the cross to provide salvation for every Pharisee, every rebel, every prodigal son, every rule follower, every sinner, every single person in this room and outside of this room. Jesus went to the cross for you, for me, and for everybody else. And so what the Pharisees miss, we have the chance to delight in, right? What they missed, they missed everything about Jesus. And I fear that some of us in this room are missing everything about Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the light. He is the Lord of the universe. And that's what he shows here. What he shows in these beautiful passages. And I just have a few points of application the first is this the life of a Pharisee is so dangerous because it gives you a false sense of security. It makes you think that your actions make you right with God. It makes you think that your righteousness will get you to heaven. But the truth is, it is a lie from hell. Hear me, only the work of Jesus saves hopeless sinners. Nothing we do can save us. On a more practical note, what can you do to find rest this week? How will you make it a priority in your own life? It'll look different for all of us, right? That's why I'm not saying you have to rest on Sunday or, or Saturday. It looks different for everybody, right? For someone with a newborn baby, it looks a lot different than someone like me who has no kids, right? It'll change for all of us. It'll look different for all of us, but the need is still the same. We need to rest in Jesus, to be the disciple, to be, to be the Christ follower that you need to be, you must rest in the arms of your Savior. Remember, as you rest, to look to Jesus for your rest. Justin Huffman, again, says this, No amount of vacationing, streaming entertainment, or social media escapism will give us true rest. Running to Christ, submitting to his provision and direction is the only real lasting Sabbath for the soul. Right? You might say, oh, yeah, I need, I need rest. I'm going to go watch a game later, stream some Netflix, right? Uh, go to the beach. And those are all great. But we truly find our rest when we look to Jesus. Make sure your rest is Jesus-centered and Jesus-filled, Christ-centered, Christ-filled. That's what our rest should look like. That's the rest that will truly 
bless us. A football game can't give you what Jesus can give you, right? And some people said, I don't know about that. I, I do like my football, but I promise you, I promise you, rest in Jesus is important. And in this passage, we see the heart of Christ. We get an up-close and personal picture of how the heart of Jesus is wired. He has compassion for the most insignificant people. You might say, I'm in here. I, I feel insignificant. Jesus has compassion for you. Jesus wouldn't let the bad people stop him from doing the right thing. And I would say this, for us Christians, we should never, never not do the right thing. It is always the right time to do the right thing for the glory of God. Pastor David talks all the time. He casts this vision of reaching Raleigh, reaching our city. And we will do that through reflecting the heart of Christ. Really? That's, that's, that's beautiful, true religion is when people look at us and they get to see a little picture of Jesus' heart. Right? And sometimes they look at us and they see a little Pharisee, right? Or, or they see a little sinner. But even in that, we can show them the heart of Christ. That's what we're called to do, to reflect Christ, to be like Christ, to grow in Christ-likeness, to make our hearts more like his heart. I pray that we would do that. Just two more points. Physical rest will mean very little if you don't have spiritual rest. Some of you in here are saying, aha, you solved it for me. This is what's wrong with my life. I don't rest enough. Thank you. But I would say that if you are not at rest spiritually, physical rest will mean very, very little. For some of us in here, our biggest problem is that we are not at rest spiritually. Some of us have unconfessed sin. And it's eating us up inside, right? From the pornography to the pride to the stealing to the whatever it is. It's unconfessed, and you will not find spiritual rest until that sin is out in the open. And some of us in here don't know Jesus as our Savior. And so you understand you need rest, you get tired, but you can't truly find it until your soul is at rest with Jesus. Right? The unbeliever is in a state of unrest, and only what Jesus did on the cross only what Jesus did on the cross can provide you that rest. And I would just end with this, and I hope that you would listen to me on this, even if you've, you've ignored me all day. Listen to this, especially to the heart of the unbeliever. What will you do with Jesus? You can't be neutral with him. Jesus makes too many crazy claims, too many great grand claims about himself for you to be neutral and say, ah, it's Jesus. I don't know. I don't really have thoughts on him. You can't do that. You can't be indifferent to Jesus. C.S. Lewis says this, either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something else. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall as his feet and call him Lord and God. You cannot be indifferent to Jesus. He makes too many grand claims about himself for you to sit in this seat and say, I don't really know what I think about Jesus, right? He's either absolutely crazy or he's the Son of God, God in the human flesh who's came to save you. And what I would ask you is, who is he to you? Is he crazy or is he God? Is he your savior or some madman? He can't just be a good religious teacher. He can't just be a little bobblehead on your night shelf or the little Bible that you look at every once in a while when life gets hard. He's either your everything or nothing. And I would say... A man who lived 2,000 years ago, who's still having the crazy impact that he's having on the world today, demands a response. 
millions and millions of people still sing Jesus' name. They still give their life for Jesus. And you say, well, what about Muhammad? What about Muslims? I would say, well, to be fair, they came 600 years after Christ. And I think when you dig into it, it's just not its true. It's not as real. And that's a whole other sermon. But when you look into Jesus, he was a real historical man. Even people who don't believe the Bible would say that Jesus was alive and Jesus died. Say, if Jesus rose, he's everything. I was sitting in my office this morning just praying for people who don't know Christ. Praying for people in this room who would say, I I don't believe in Jesus. And maybe you've had bad experiences. Maybe you've went to a Christian school and hated it. Maybe you've met some Pharisees that just really soiled the name of Jesus. But you're here for some reason. Because somebody invited you. Your spouse drug you into church. Your parents said, no, it's not an option. You're coming to church today. Whatever it is, you are here for a reason. The Son of God would look at you like he looked at the man with the withered hand and he would say, come to me. The heart of Christ would look to you and say, I want you. And I want you so much that I died for you. And I would say, what will you do with this Jesus, this historical figure who actually walked, who actually died, and who actually resurrected. Just a fun fact, another difference between all the other world religions and Jesus, you cannot find Jesus' body. Joseph Smith found him, right? Muhammad found him. Jesus, you can't find him because he rose. So what I would say to you, this is far too important to just passively say, eh, it's Jesus. I don't know. I'll figure it out at some point. This world is far too beautiful for there to not be a God. Creation demands that there's a God, points to God, points to Jesus. The Bible says that. And so I would just call out to you who are not a Christian to come to our Lord and Savior Jesus for salvation. And I just hope, I hope there's one person I'm at this point pleading with you, so I'll end here. And I'll just say to the Christians, I'm just on a soapbox here. Charles Spurgeon would say that if someone's going to go to hell, they should have to do it over our dead bodies, right? If someone's going to go to hell, we should be holding onto their knees, doing everything we can to make sure that they don't go there. And as we think... Matthew 27, uh, or Matthew 7 says that many will go to hell, few will go to heaven. Many people will not know Jesus. Some of which think they know Jesus, some who are indifferent. It's our job, our responsibility to reach the nations, to reach your friends, to reach your family members, to reach your enemies. And just think, think about the people who need hope. And again, to, to the unbeliever, I would just say, you can find hope, rest, salvation today. I am sorry for the mistreatment of Christians or Pharisees that you've dealt with. When you see Jesus, when you truly see his heart, he is beautiful, he is compassionate, just like he was in our text today. And so you can pray, call out to Jesus I pray that you would do that today. Let's pray. Dear God, you are 
so good. Your heart is so kind. The fact that you came to this earth to be mistreated, to be challenged by mere men, to be spit on, beat, mocked, ridiculed. You did all of that for us. And I can't help but think there's one or two, maybe more people in here who don't know you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit within these next few moments would do something mighty, something powerful, something that we can only attribute to you. Would you help us? Those of us who are Christians but tend to be Pharisees sometimes, tend to not reflect your heart, would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you help us to be more like you? You are so good, and we are just crying out for your spirit right here, right now, to speak to us. In these next few moments, would we praise your name? Would we find rest in you? And we just ask your spirit to move. We love you. We praise you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.